Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. And this is our podcast where we talk about Ari's experience with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all his other sort of medical issues and everything stemming from both of those things. Right. And the exciting thing is, this is episode four. And between when we recorded episode three and now, we just went live on iTunes. And so people are yeah. actually starting to listen. So this is pretty exciting. Uh, in the last episode, we talked about Ari getting his first transplant. And this episode, we're going to pick up right from there. Mm-hmm. So I think the first question I want to ask you is, there's lots of medications involved after you get a transplant. Lots of mm-hmm. restrictions that you have to follow, new rules, new everything. So walk our listeners through what do you got to do after you get a transplant? What are the medications like? What are the rules? Okay, so you get a lot of medications when you first have a transplant. Some of them are just because you've had a major surgery. So there's like a couple of major antibiotics that you're on. But most of them are either to suppress your immune system and why do you need to suppress the immune system? Well, you need to suppress your immune system because the body, your body doesn't naturally say, oh, let's take a part from outside your body and put it inside your body, much less connect somebody else's body part to your body part. Even though they do all of that matching, all the genetic matching, all the what they call cross-typing and cross-matching for blood type and all of those things, there's still, it's a foreign body and you don't want your body to attack that organ as foreign, you want it to accept it and use it and let it work. So they want to suppress your immune system. So the the typical thing is that there are three drugs. It's a cocktail of three medications that you take. Over time, those have all changed around lots of different ways because of research and stuff. And I can only definitively tell you one of the three drugs that I took at the time because it's the drug that I still take after my third transplant now, and that drug is prednisone, and it is very cheap, and that's one of the reasons that they still use it. The other two drugs are the ones that have been interchangeable throughout my life and my health as they've gotten better medications um, to do different things and cover slightly different parts of the immune system. Okay, and that's that covers sort of the medication side. What about the other rules you have to follow? Okay, there's also physical restrictions just because, you know, you had a major abdominal surgery. So uh, I had a, an incision that was like eight inches long in right in my front across my abdominal muscles, whatever abdominal muscles I ever actually had to begin with. And so, I, you know, I wasn't allowed to lift more than five pounds for, I think, a month. And then more than, I think, I want to say 15 pounds for three months. And then after that, it was, you know, be careful. And that's just so you don't ruin your sutures and let your your, your muscles heal. Right, and right. And heal. So there's that kind of thing. And then there's some dietary restrictions, which are primarily common sense, but are a little bit, you know, they're still kidney focused. Um, it's different for me at the time than most people when they have their first transplant, because most people have their first transplant after having been on dialysis for a while. And the dialysis diet is much more restrictive. So this is a less restrictive diet than dialysis. And what it basically is, is you've got to be careful about sodium. You've got to be careful about 
not eating too much protein because protein is the hardest thing for your kidneys to break down. And you've also, on the other hand, got to be careful about not eating too many things with potassium in them. So that's all your vegetables. And especially then you're told, generally speaking, don't have a ton of potatoes or bananas because those are the highest potassium foods okay. that there are. And um, potassium is important because potassium builds up in your muscles and drags it down when there's not, or what, sorry, when there's too much potassium in your system. And you think, oh, my muscles, whatever, except your heart is a muscle and too much potassium in your heart can stop it. So that's why one of the many reasons that your kidneys are important. So um, you've got to be careful about that sort of thing. But it's it's really the transplant diet is a lot more about just be mindful. Don't eat 70 potatoes in a sitting. Don't eat four steaks. You know, they, they do give you actually more specific guidelines and they talk about this number of ounces and that sort of thing. But but the fact that you're on immunosuppressants also affects the dietary restrictions. Right, that's true. Uh, you're supposed to not eat any raw anything. Um not anything, any raw protein. So, you know, a raw egg would be bad. Um, you're not supposed to have uh, sushi or um, any other raw meat. Um, yeah, cook your steak through. Right. Uh, they, they suggest against even doing like a rare uh, steak because of the the things that can be living in your food that the average person will just totally their body would kill it and or metabolize it or however your body deals with that. But when your system your immune system is so suppressed, you cannot necessarily overcome that. Um, and then not only are you likely to be sick, you're likely to be sick for a long time. Because. Right. That's the thing. If you go to a, a, a restaurant where they serve raw or undercooked meat, there's usually that note at the bottom of the menu that this can increase your risk of foodborne illness. And the yes. fact that Ari is taking these drugs that purposefully will suppress his immune system means that that's much, much more likely to occur if he consumes these kinds of foods. Yeah. Yeah. And also, this is a thing we should talk about. You are just sick way more often. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that... In fact, when you first have a transplant, you're on the highest dose of immunosuppressing medications that you ever are. They taper them off over the course of one, then three, then six months. But uh, especially at the beginning, you have to go into the hospital pretty regularly to get your blood tested because they want to keep track of all kinds of things, make sure everything's working really well, and... Also, make sure that your medication levels aren't too high because at levels that are too high, they can actually damage your new organ, which would not be good. So you have to go to the hospital a lot, but the hospital is where sick people are. And so whenever you're out in public, but especially when you go for labs, you have to wear a mask on your face. And they give you masks, and they are not those kind of like fun little, you're going to clean your house and it's dusty masks. They're these, I was going to say industrial, but they're medical heavy-duty masks, um, very, very thick, and they have little contraptions inside them to make them seal to your face very tightly. Uh, the ones I had were bright orange and shaped so that they kind of made me look like a duck. Um, 
they're really not fun to wear, but they were really important to try to filter out anything that I could come into contact with in public. Okay, so we've kind of been through the medications and the rules, and one of the things we talked about last time was pretty much you got your transplant in the summer when you right. were 19, and then you went to college that fall. Yeah, they uh, they recommend that you not, say, return to work for about three months, and... I went off to college like two, maybe two and a half months after the transplant. It was earlier than, than they wanted me to, but that's when school started and that's when we were able to schedule the transplant and all of those things. And I really wanted to get the show on the road. And, you know, they basically, as I recall anyway, agreed, okay, this is all right. And you were not going to college close to home either. No, no. I had the, the year before, the year before the transplant, while I was at Portland State, I had worked up an audition and auditioned at several uh, conservatories. And Conservatory is a music school. Right. Yeah. Um, these were specifically music schools that were attached to small liberal arts colleges because that was kind of what I was interested in. So I'd been accepted to several and I had chosen to go to a school called Lawrence University and Conservatory of Music. It's a small school in um, Appleton, Wisconsin. Appleton is famous for being the birthplace of Harry Houdini and also the hometown of Joseph McCarthy. Uh, so it has that going for it. <laughs> it's also famous for having the Lawrence Conservatory and University. Um, anyway, so I, I went there and, you know, I was growing up in Oregon and then I was going to go to Wisconsin to go to college, which is pretty far away from all the stuff that I had been doing medically. Okay. And what did you do to get set up medically for college? Did, was there another hospital you had to get in touch with? Yeah. My <laughs> my nurses, because you get a nurse, you're assigned a nurse. They're called transplant coordinators. They are wonderful people. I love them dearly. At, at OHSU, they were concerned, but they helped me work this stuff out. So by then, email had was kind of a thing. And we were able to use that, and they helped me find a hospital in Appleton. Appleton is the third largest metropolitan area in Wisconsin after Milwaukee and Madison. And Madison and Milwaukee are big cities with research hospitals and universities in them. Appleton has a university, but the population of the university is maybe 3,000 at most. There was a hospital in Appleton. There's actually probably several, but there was, there's not a university research hospital there. So they found one and we got in touch with a doctor and that doctor talked to my doctor and they tried to set me up there. They were not used to seeing transplant patients there. Certainly not such recent transplant patients. Uh, they, I'm sure had heard of Alport syndrome in medical school, but I was definitely an enigma to them a little bit. So you were had, there first. I was there first. I was, you know, a lot of people's first for a lot of things in that sense. But I got set up with that. I had an appointment with that doctor. I'm sure, I don't remember when it was, but I'm sure it was within a month of my arrival on campus. Okay. And then you're doing the basic leaving home, going to school, being a freshman, yeah, all of that stuff. How did being a transplant recipient, do you think, affect that experience for you? Several different ways. There were, in some ways it didn't at all. You know, in many ways I was just, here I am, I'm a student. But there were several, several things that were important. For instance, um, if it had been just me or just up to me or I hadn't had the transplant, I guess is what I'm trying to say, I would have probably just 
packed my bags and my stuff and all my mallets and sticks and stuff that I needed and gone and moved in myself. But because I was still under a pretty severe lifting restriction, my father came with me. Um, I think, you know, I think one or both of my parents probably wanted to go with me anyway to see me off to school. Yeah, of course. But I was, especially having been a very sick child for so long, I had certain feelings of being smothered, which is not necessarily accurate. But as a teenager, that's kind of how you feel. And it was amplified by the fact that I was had to be with my parents more often because they had to come to doctor's appointments sometimes. So... Anyway, so I, my dad came and helped me set up my dorm room, which was, which was fun. And he, you know, he carried things for me a lot, which was really nice. Also, this was unusual. The university was aware that I had the transplant because we made them aware. Also, I'm pretty sure that several of my letters of recommendation mentioned my issues and, I don't know. I'm sure probably something about my heroic fight against my illness or something. Oh, oh, what was your college essay about? You know, I don't remember. You didn't talk about your disease? I think I probably didn't. I tried to do that thing. Now we have the Common App. Like when I help students apply for college, they they just write one essay and it goes to all the everybody. But back then it was pretty common that everybody had their own essay. And so I tried to pursue this strategy as suggested by my parents and my guidance counselors of writing one essay and then adapting it for everybody's prompt. And I don't think it was a about my health. And I'm going to say, especially because still I was kind of struggling with or not ready to identify as somebody who like, well, I don't have health problems. I mean, I obviously had health problems, but I wasn't a person who was, who wanted that to be at the forefront of my identity. I mean, I still don't, but I, I would not have just tossed that out there immediately. And I think like leaned on it, I think is how I would have felt about it. So to get back to what we were talking about. So the the university was aware. Yeah, they were aware. They were aware because we wanted, I needed to have blood taken pretty regularly by the campus nurse. They were aware because we wanted them to be aware in case anything happened, all that stuff. And like I said, perhaps letters of recommendation mentioned it, but the, the uh, PR office of the university got in touch with me and they said, Hey, it's really cool that you're coming. You face such adversity. And I was like, what are you talking? Oh, that thing. Right. Okay. And they said, well, we've got in touch with a local news station and they'd like to talk to you. And I thought, okay. I mean, I've never been a person that's really sought fame. I'm, I realize the irony in doing a podcast about myself and saying that, but, but still. For the record, I did have to convince you to do this. <laughs> for the record, that's true. So uh, they said, well, we've contacted this TV station and they'd like to interview you. And I was like, oh. Okay, sure. Why not? You know, this, I guess this is what's going to happen and we'll do it and it'll be over. And that was true. But what that meant was like on the first day of class, truly the first day of class, there was a time where they followed me around campus and did like B-roll of me walking to the conservatory building. With, being really brave. Yeah, being really brave, trying to find the right front door and act like I knew where I was going. Um, You're such an inspiration. I Well, I guess I was. I, I believe a VHS of this edited down segment exists somewhere. They sat me down in a room in the library that I was never able to find after that. It was very fancy. I don't think I had access to it after that uh, and interviewed me for a long time. And they also, <laughs> this is the worst part of it for me, they also shot 
a video of me in class, and my first class was sight singing, which was something I had never really done before. Um, explain what sight singing is. So sight singing is this thing that most professional musicians, uh, classical musicians at least, have had to take a class or many classes in. It's to assist you in understanding music theory. It's the idea that when you look at music, you can understand what it sounds like and hear it in your head. And in order to do that, you practice singing it. And at my school, at Lawrence, we did this thing where we used what's called movable dough solfege. And solfege is like do re mi, like the sound of music, um, sort of. And I had never done it that way before. I was not used to singing. And this was, like I said, literally the first day. And it was us trying to sing like do re mi or something. And the way I just sang it, which was terrible, without any breath support or anything, was, and, and out of tune, was so much better than what I sounded like that first day of class. And that was on TV of me. And it's, it was so mortifying. Okay. I have never seen this. And as soon as we are done recording, I'm going to bother your mother to try to <laughs> track this down. Oh, please do. I think that tape might have gotten lost. Um, no, it, I'm, feel free, but, uh, it's, um, you can see me rocking that, that 1996 haircut. So those were the main things that were unusual. The other thing was, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, as a percussionist, you know, you don't just carry around a trumpet case. You carry around a really large bag of mallets and sticks, and then you have to move, say, a giant instrument or two or seven. And you have to do that for every rehearsal. And I had a lot of rehearsals. And so I was kind of a pain in the butt to... All of my new friends, like, hi, I'm Ari. Can you move this marimba for me? I'm sorry, I just had giant surgery and I can't do this. And it was a difficult way to introduce myself. Um, it, it was fine. Like, it was okay and I could deal with it. But, you know, it wasn't ideal, I think. And um, it, it sort of forced me to put forward that part of my identity that I was not super comfortable with being the forefront of my identity, Constantly, And this is a thing that to sort of expand this outside of this one story and outward that I feel like is really common in your life. And mm -hmm. the fact that you said you didn't write about your disease, I didn't know that. Yeah. But it doesn't surprise me because you do not like telling people about this. And I think you don't like this being the main thing that people know about you. Yeah. And you and I have also discussed when in a relationship a friendship or an employment situation or anything, do you let people know that this is a thing? You know, I've had that as your spouse when I'm when I'm working and, oh, I've got to get off early because Ari's got a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of weird. A lot of people don't accompany their spouse to a doctor's appointment. So right. I'll say, well, my, my, my husband has this genetic disorder and he's had three kidney transplants and I try to just go right through it really right, fast. Right, through it, yeah. And then, you know, the person reacts, oh my God. And you kind of have to comfort them or... Tell them, like, it's not that big a deal, even though sometimes it is. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it was really weird. And this is a place where my memory is a little bit fuzzy because of reasons we're going to get to. But, um, yeah, it was strange. I think there were, you know, there were jokes sometimes. And I, I was thinking about this while well, was it bullying. No, it wasn't bullying. It wasn't even that. Nobody was, like, really trying to hurt my feelings or keep me down in that way. But... It's a way of being a friend with somebody sometimes that you kind of josh around and, oh, this is your thing. Well, you have long hair, ha, 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 or whatever. And my thing was sometimes like, oh, hey, what's up, kidney boy? And, like, 
that's not a, a common thing and it mostly didn't bother me. The main reason it bothered me was like, there's other things about me. You know, there's lots of other things about me that you know and like, and that's why we hang out. And, you know, you don't really know this, but there's a lot of trauma associated with all of my kidney stuff that you don't know. And you're just kind of going, hey, you're fine. So we can joke about it. And I was fine for a while. Well, and that's part of what we're doing in the podcast. I yeah. think when you say people know one aspect of it and they don't know, sometimes this is traumatic. When I say it's not a big deal, but sometimes it is, yeah. is that... A lot of people who we know very well even kind of only have one window into this. They right. see one part of your disease. And I think a lot of it also happens kind of – and I, this is weird to say because it sounds kind of shady, but behind closed doors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you talked about every, your family getting together before your transplant and one of your uncles telling your mother, Ari's trying to act like everything's fine and it's not working. We can tell. Yeah. And that is a thing that you still – do to a certain extent. Sure. And I think that if anything's changed, you've gotten better at the fakery. Oh, yeah. We will we will have times when you are not feeling well that we will go and visit friends or go to a family event. And mm -hmm. I think that they will not know that you'll, you know, you might be a little lower key, but then we will come home and you will be exhausted. And then that will be several days of recovery. And I think that people outside in our lives don't know that. Right, right. I mean, I'm not, I, I feel like that makes it sound like in our current life, I cover all the time, and I don't think that's true, but it is more often, I think, than the average person I interact with is aware of. Right, and this, me even saying that, enters into this sort of contradiction of, I don't want this to sound like there's a dark <laughs> shroud over our home. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not that, but it's not everything's fine all the time either. Right. And finding that way to, to navigate that and talk about it is always really tricky to have the right amount or convey the, the perfectly accurate level of seriousness. Yeah, it's very difficult, and it's not really possible to do. And I have a lot of experience with it, and I haven't found a good way to do it in 30 seconds or even really in five minutes. Um, you know, I, I mentioned in a previous episode about telling my students about my health history and... I try to do it pretty quickly so it's not the whole period is about that. And still it takes 10 or 15 minutes to do the very compressed version. You know, we're going to do hours here and not, and it, it still is going to be compressed. But in 15 minutes to try to tell kids, like, I have this serious thing, but I'm okay, but I'm sort of not, but this is what you need to know is very, very difficult. And so when you first meet somebody, and you're like, hey, can you move this snare drum from here to here? You know, I need it moved three feet so that I can practice. That's weird because, well, dude, it's a snare drum. Just do it. We all do it. And like, I, I know. I'm really sorry. I, I can't right now. It's hard. So you're, you're attending college. You're just starting off. You've got yeah. the transplant. How is the transplant working for you? Uh, at first, awesome. Like, really great. And just noticeably everything about my life changes. I think I said earlier, it just, it was transformative. Um, it was transformative. It like it, everything was different because I'd spent at least a year being very, very sick and also on a rapid decline from very sick, you know, starting at very sick and then getting way, way worse really fast is a dramatic thing to kind of go through and feel. And then to suddenly feel, basically normal. 
like a normal that in some ways I hadn't felt at that point since eighth grade, ninth grade. So five years, something like that. It was a lot. It was dramatic and really, really noticeable. And so in some ways I felt way better than I actually felt, you know, just psychologically, I felt amazing. I had so much more energy than I was used to that it felt like I had all the energy. Some of that was assisted by some of the medications I had that gave me energy, quote unquote, but that didn't matter. You know, it it really didn't. It was terrific for the first two trimesters and the second trimester ends at spring break sometime in March, April, right up through the end, close to the end of the second semester, I was doing great. Certainly first trimester, awesome. Second trimester, pretty great. Um, at the end, starting to really lose some steam. And then third trimester, suddenly I was really not feeling well. And how not feeling well? Um, very similar to the previous year, just not as, uh, just not as big. So fatigue, vomiting, shortness of breath? Um, yeah, lots of, lots more fatigue, not as much vomiting at all, a little bit of shortness of breath. Two of the most notable things were the, the fatigue and I started sleeping a lot more again. All of a sudden I was sleeping in really late and also sort of had insomnia. Just, I, not immediately, but very quickly fell back into that weird cycle where be awake for about six hours and then be like, oh my goodness, I have to go to bed. And that six hours could occur any time in the 24-hour cycle, and I would try to have that be when I had class, because I really wanted to go to class, but I was just sleeping a ton. And there were times where, like, I slept through a rehearsal, and people, like, came to my room and tried to wake me up, and it was bad. Or eventually, I was dropping classes, which included ensembles, and so people had to cover my parts, which meant they had to get into my locker, so they would come and like try to wake me up to get my locker combination or something. It it got weird. It was it was a problem, obviously, for me, but it caused everybody around me problems as well. The other thing was that I started being mentally foggy again. Really, really mentally foggy, which is a really not fun place to be when you're at a fast moving university where you want to do well. Or even if you don't want to do well, but if you want to do well, it's really hard. Okay, and so you're saying foggy. Could you be more descriptive? Explain to people what the fog is like. Yeah, so um, my short-term memory was shot. I would have a conversation with somebody and maybe repeat myself in that conversation several times, which some people just do that every once in a while. You know, you do, but... I would not really remember that I had made a point a little bit ago and um, just make it again. Or I'd be in class and I would suddenly realize, wait, I don't know what we're talking about because I can't follow the chain of conversation. And Lawrence classes especially are very discussion-based. And so that became very, very difficult. Uh, also then long-term memory and other things started to be tricky, I guess, in that Things that I knew that I knew, I it was like I couldn't access it. Like I was getting 404 errors all the time. Like I just couldn't, my brain that I was actively using couldn't find my storage files somewhere. 
Um, it wasn't always that bad. Some of what I'm describing is in its severity is more like what it was before I had the transplant, but it was pretty bad. I was really, really unaware of what was going on. And this is why I say my memory is fuzzy from that time because my memory was fuzzy at the time. I wasn't able to take in information and retain it well. And so it didn't stick around what was going on. And so this would definitely start to affect your classes and your performance. And Oh, unquestionably. Um, in fact, I ended up, the dean of students called me into his office and said, hey, we think that you should drop some classes here. And I was shocked. And mostly that was because I was not aware of about how much it had been affecting me. So this is turning into a Donald Rumsfeld thing of unknown unknowns. Well, yeah, it was it was it was sort of unknown unknowns, but it's also a a catch twenty two. Like I needed to know how well I was doing, but I couldn't know how well I was doing because of how unwell I was doing. You know, I my brain is what I needed to use to be aware of how my brain was working, and I couldn't do that because it's all the same thing. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty consistent problem. And all of the issues I was having, you know, I, I, I went to my doctor in Appleton. I called my nurse. I, I did all of those things. I emailed my nurse. I was talking to them pretty frequently and having blood tests and stuff. And they said, Oh, this sounds like you're having uremia. And this is the first time I remember hearing this term, although I was under its effects for several years leading up to my transplant. Okay, so explain uremia. So uremia, as I understand it, is a fairly broad medical term for having what could, for lack of a better definition, um, waste in your blood. The stuff that your kidneys is supposed to get rid of, including things like urea, which is, I think, the main component of urine. Um, all of those things that you're supposed to get rid of, like I just said, you're not getting rid of very well. And so they're literally clogging your system. They're toxic and they're poisoning things. And it, there's a very, very wide range of effects. I briefly checked Wikipedia before doing this episode and I was stunned. It was a huge, huge list, many symptoms of which I've had and some of which I never had. Um, but the main ones that stuck out to me are the ones that I've talked about. Having nausea, having insomnia, having fatigue, having mental and cognitive issues. Um, lots of them. It became, you know, when I talk about having, being foggy, I'm also talking about suddenly I have trouble putting together a cogent argument. And I don't just mean in debate. I mean, like if I need to write a paper and I need to say, Plato said this, and he supports his evidence, he supports it with this evidence from somewhere else, that just the structure of that sentence would be difficult for me to form sometimes. And that's really challenging, like I said, obviously, when you're trying to learn stuff. You also talked about, I, I have seen you under the effects of this. I wasn't yeah. present at the time, but you've, you've had this kind of problem at other times. Yeah. And so you've told me this story about one of the ensembles you were in and sort of how this affected you mentally. Yeah. This actually happens um, the second year that I'm at Lawrence. I went home, had a procedure over the summer that moved some ureters around. They found that one was um, kinked and that was blocking the flow of some things. And things got backed up. So the ureter leading to your bladder was literally kinked like a hose. Right. 
not like that far, but yeah. So they just switched out another ureter that I had in my body because I had extra from having native kidneys and a transplant kidney. And that was, that fixed the problem for a while. But then the second year, um, I had, you re- have to re-audition for major ensembles every, every year, I guess, as a percussionist. It might have been more often sometimes. But at that point, I was in orchestra, which is the top ensemble you could be in as a percussionist. I was very proud of myself and happy. It was a really good ensemble. And I was really dedicated to it. Like I had always been to all of my, all of my ensembles that I was in, um, going back a number of years at that point. And I was in a, in a rehearsal, like you are, and the percussion section in orchestra, unless you're playing certain works that tend to be, you know, from like 1870 and later, um, is boring. You don't play a lot. You have a lot of what are called rests, and you sit around, you sit around, you sit around, and you're either counting numbers for minutes at a time, or, you know, you play your one triangle hit, and then you sit down, and sometimes that's just if you're doing a run-through of a long piece, but in this case, um, we were rehearsing, so we might be rehearsing a long segment that I did not play in. And I don't remember the name of the piece that we were working on, but I was in rehearsal and I, I remember feeling like I am upright by force of will right now. I really want to be in this rehearsal. I don't have a lot of important things to play when they come. I know I can play them well and otherwise I can just sort of stand in the back and be good. And they were rehearsing a long section, like I said, that I was not playing in and I started feeling really, really tired and like actually drowsy and (laughs) I thought that well they're going to be doing this for a while I could just and I'm so tired I can't even stand up and for some reason it did not occur to me to sit down p.s. that reason is uremia so I thought that well there's this pile of timpani covers and timpani covers are like in this case padded um, fabric things that are they large. go over the top of this kettle drum right and so there are four or five of them and they're lying on the floor and they made a very soft large space and i thought well i could just lie down on that and i would feel better and then i can play in half an hour or something when it's time for me to actually play so i lay down on <laughs> this pile of timpani covers and i fell asleep that was not my intent I, but i fell asleep and i woke up to somebody shaking me, saying, Ari, you need to play, you're in a lot of trouble. And it was terribly frightening and disorienting. Um, and I've, I've told this story a number of times just to indicate how bad my uremia was. Because if you tell this story to like any professional or semi-pro musician about, I decided it was okay to take a nap during rehearsal, they will look at you like you're crazy. Because the important part of rehearsal is two things. One is playing your part well. But two, it's that you learn everybody else's part. So you know how your part fits with theirs. You cannot learn everybody else's part. You can't know what's going on. And especially as somebody who wanted to be a music educator, like I did, it would be very important to watch somebody else who is a master at their craft rehearse the ensemble. And so I missed all of that. I thought it would be okay to just take a nap. And obviously, it was not... And so another aspect then of uremia is my decision-making capabilities were completely out of whack, like completely in question. So my memory sucks, long and short term. My cognition and ability to like reason things out sucks. And also then, relatedly, my decision-making capabilities suck. I can't 
trust myself, although at the time I didn't realize this because my brain was compromised, but I could not trust myself or should not have trusted myself to make good decisions. But I didn't know what good or bad decisions were in some ways at the time because, again, the brain that I needed to tell me that was the thing that was compromised. And so you've got peers and friends yeah. at school who are seeing seeing you. Um, are they concerned? What are they doing? Do they raise this with you? Yes and no. I'm going to say mostly no. And this is a weird thing where you think, well, obviously people must have noticed and must have said something and weren't people looking out for you. And I wasn't I, trying to indict anyone with that question. No, understandably. And you, you shouldn't and I shouldn't. Um, I, I don't because... Again, I was covering a lot. Um, at the time that I took this nap in rehearsal, I don't think I'd missed any class. I don't think that I had, yeah, I don't think I'd missed any class. I don't think I had done anything else super weird in rehearsal. You know, everybody's involved with their own thing. And that was a very weird thing to do. And everybody around me was confused by it and embarrassed by it. I think it might go without saying, but I got kicked out of orchestra. <laughs> um, not proud to say that, but as I, I thought it was the right thing to do even then, and I think it's the right thing now. Like, you can't have somebody that isn't going to be there to play their part when there are plenty of other people who would really like to. So I got demoted, um, which really wasn't fun, obviously. But it was a little bit of a wake-up call. Wait, I just did this thing, and that seems not right, but I'm not sure. It seemed right at the time. That's odd. And I called my nurse and said, hey... You know, I don't think I told her that story, but I said, I haven't been feeling well. We had my blood tested. Oh, it looks like things are not going great. But yeah, other people sometimes said, oh, something's going on here. Maybe like, hey, are you okay? You seem to be sleeping a lot, but they don't know the whole backstory. They don't know what to be looking out for. And I really didn't know as much then as I do now about uremia and other kidney effects as much as they tried to educate me. There were things that were left out or that I missed because I was sick and you just can't catch everything. And so this gets into sort of one of the harder parts, I think, about this story. Yeah. Which is that your decision making and your cognition is really compromised. Yes. You are also the person responsible for monitoring and ca taking care of your own health. Right. And one of the things is the medications we talked about at the beginning of the podcast you have to take these twice daily. They're crucial to make sure the organ stays healthy. Yeah. So how is that going while you're compromised? Not well, um, unfortunately. And in fact, at that time, I was supposed to take medications at least three times a day. Okay. Because it was a different medication or set of medications. So, yeah, my decision-making capabilities and my cognition is all super compromised and... It would not be fair to say I stopped taking my medications because that's not true, but I did not take them regularly. And that's a really important thing that you do because you're supposed to maintain constant levels or as close to constant levels of these chemicals in your body as you can for many, many reasons. You don't want the levels to get too high because they're what's called nephrotoxic or damaging to your kidney. And obviously that's a bad thing. And you don't want them to get too low because then your immune system could suddenly go, hey, wait, what have we been doing? There's this foreign organ in our body. We got to get rid of it. So it's really, really important that you do that. Also, um, organ rejection or transplant rejection is the kind of thing that can be inertial, essentially, in that once it gets started, 
it's harder to stop it. You have to have maybe more drugs rather than just, oh, whoops, I missed a couple doses. Now I can be back on. So it's really important that you take all your drugs all the time. That had been made very clear to me. I knew that. And still I had this idea, sometimes, not all the time, that like, well, I'm supposed to take it, let's say at 9 a.m., but I slept in and now it's 10.30. If I take it now, then that will mean I'll be having a little bit of an overdose at, I don't remember what time I usually took my midday meds, but at, let's say, 1.30, so I should skip this dose entirely. And I would do that, and I would like affirmatively think that that was the right thing to do. And just so we underline this very clearly, <laughs> it is not the right thing it's to do. It's really not. That's a really bad decision. It was a terrible decision. And it was one that I would never, ever have made in my right mind. Like I was pretty convinced it was the right thing to do. And I think that the thing to me that underlines my confusion is not just the, you know, the timpani cover story, which really underlines it for me as a musician, but that I, if it had just been like, well, I just don't need to take this. Maybe I won't take it. I don't like taking pills. I I don't care about taking pills. I take so many pills. I've done it for decades. It is easy. I take so many. It's fine. I don't care. And that was true then, too. It was that I was affirmatively saying I don't need to. Not I don't want to, which is how I think some people think of this situation. Like, well, you know, you're 19, you're 20, you're young. You kind of think, well, I'm fine. I don't care. I don't need this. And this wasn't about, I'm fine, I don't care, I don't need this. This was about, like, well, this would be, this is unnecessary, even the wrong thing for me to take my medications now because of this, this, and this. Like, that I had a serious logic error that then I built, I built a convincing argument for myself upon. And that's terrifying. Like, it's terrifying me now talking about it, even though it was a long time ago. Well, it's, it's scary for me to listen to because it harkens to other experiences that we'll probably talk about far <laughs> in the future. Oh, no. <laughs> but this can happen. You, you sort of, like I said, you don't know that you're wrong. Right. And you tend to, when you're in this sort of weird state, and it's only been a few times, and it's been a long time since this has happened. But I'll watch you do that where you kind of create not just one wrong flaw, but you've kind of stem right up from there. And so you've kind of built a mythos of wrong ideas in your head that are all connected. You can, you can get kind of, it's, it's not like a conspiracy theory, but it's like that in its complexity in terms of you think this one wrong thing, and then you all of a sudden think this dozen other wrong things related to it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty strongly convinced of it too. Right. Um, to the point where, um, while at Lawrence, I, I started dating for the first time, which was really great for me. Um, I had not dated in high school because I was sick, and I had all these sort of, I guess, sort of martyr complex feelings of, I don't want to share my disease or impose my disease on anybody, um, which is interesting considering how much I sort of didn't want to talk about or didn't want to be a person with disease, that I was still aware of that in a lot of ways. But I kind of got over that in college, and so I was... Um, I had this awesome girlfriend, and I remember her saying, don't you need to take your pills? And me saying, oh, no. No, I don't need to take these ones that would cause this, this other problem. That would be a bad idea. And her kind of going, really? Because she was plenty smart, knew that was a stupid thing, but um, didn't want to push it. And I, you know, I can't blame her for that. Um, that was, I was, because I was super convincing and very certain I was right. Right, I'm familiar with this too. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you are. Uh, I, not, I'm sure. I know you are. I've I've seen you there. So, um, 
that builds up over time when, you know, to kind of come back to your original question, when, when you're not taking your medication regularly in a very important situation like this, obviously it has consequences. And what that meant was that my kidneys started to do even less well. So I already had kidneys that weren't doing great because I was having symptoms of uremia. But then I, like I said, I did not stop taking drugs, but I slowed down on my medication in in essence. And that meant that actual real um, chronic uh, rejection, actual real chronic rejection started. And what that means is there's two kinds of rejection that can occur in a transplant. One is acute rejection, which is not as fun as it sounds, where it's small and usually reversible. You give what's called usually a steroid pulse or basically a large dosage of medication that is then tapered back off to get your body to chill out a little bit. And then the rejection is reversed, usually or chronic rejection, which is not reversible, and the function of the transplanted kidney goes further and further downhill as your body continues to attack it and say, no thanks, we don't want you. Yeah, you're rolling down the hill and you're not going to get back up. You are not going to get back up at all because, um, in my case, because I was not taking nearly enough of the medications as I needed to be. Okay, and in the next episode, we're going to talk about you still being at college, and the kidney failure itself. Okay. But right now, since we just started publishing the podcast and people have been able to listen to it, we have started to get listener mail. And so I'm pretty excited about that. We've gotten a couple questions. Okay. And um, if anybody sent me a question and I don't address it, rest assured I have it, and it might just be integrated into a podcast where it makes more sense chronologically. Fancy. So our... Very first question comes from Sean, and this is actually related to the moment in the story we are right now. Okay. He wants to know, um, did your transplants fail because transplants just fail sometimes, or because you have Alport syndrome, your body wasn't making cartilage that the new kidney needed? Oh, excellent question. Um, (laughs) It's sort of a third option, as I said. Transplants do just fail sometimes, and... There's statistics on how often they fail that I do not have at my fingertips, but they do fail sometimes. And almost all of the transplant research goes into finding ways to not have transplants fail. Um, and maybe we can talk about all that technology sometime in the future because it's, it's interesting and I'd like to know more about it myself. But so that's sometimes the case. In this case, transplants fail a lot more often when you don't do what you're supposed to do to keep the transplant which is what the case is. And then finally, Alport syndrome, while, as we said when I took that quiz, is not cured by the transplant, it's also sort of not directly relevant anymore because what it means specifically is that my body does not produce that collagen correctly or enough or well. And whether or not I produce collagen for a kidney from somebody else doesn't matter because I don't do that. Right. It already comes with the collagen it needs. Yeah. And can then reproduce. And it's not the the mutated kind. It's the fine kind. And so then it can reproduce on its, or not reproduce, but replenish on its own as far as I understand it. No one has ever said anything about that to the contrary to me anyway. 
Okay. And people who listened to episode one might remember you saying you were worried about getting family timelines wrong <laughs> and your chronology. And I said to your mother, Martha, if she was listening, she should write in. And you did. she heard my call. So she did. She sent me this letter after episode one. And it says, let me clarify some chronology and family history con- confusion. Okay. I will undoubtedly give more detail than you need or want. <laughs> My mother, Maureen, died on March 31st, 1956, the night before Easter, of kidney failure. At the time, it was called Bright's disease, as I think all kidney disease was then. In 1968, when I went to UCSC, University of California at Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz, yeah, and my dad helped me to fill out the required medical forms, I learned that her disease was um, glomerular nephritis. Glomerular. I can't say it either. Yeah, forgive me if I get any medical pronunciations wrong over the course of this podcast because it will happen. Back to Martha's letter. Um, The family story was that she and her cousin Debbie had strep as a child before antibiotics. Sometimes one's immune system, in addition to attacking the strep, would also attack one's own body. In Maureen's case, it was then believed it was her kidneys, and in Debbie's, her heart, rheumatic fever. Correct or not, this was the family story. One of my grandmother Kate's brothers, Ben, had some sort of kidney problems, including casts in his urine, which Ari has also had. I don't know anything else about the extent of his kidney problems or anyone else going back in the generations. Kate died December 22, 1986, at the age of 82, of ovarian cancer. Grandpa Max, her husband twice over, died in 1974 at the age of 72. I am not aware of any kidney disease in his family. As for Maureen's siblings, her brother Norman has had hematuria, but as far as I know, that's all. And And hematuria is blood in the urine. And neither of my cousins, Elizabeth and Steve, are affected, nor are Steve's children. Ari was two when we received the diagnosis of benign familial hematuria from a specialist in Pasadena, California. We moved to Portland in August of 1980, and a little more than a year later, at four and a half, was the kidney biopsy. I was told that Ari had nephritis, and I freaked out, because that was what had killed my mother. At the time, they said it was definitely not Alport. I'm not sure when the diagnosis changed, but I think the hearing loss in 1986 contributed to the change in diagnosis. I do remember the doctor saying something like, of course you knew this was going to happen. Yeah. Of course we did not. (laughs) That happened a couple of times. And uh, your mother also wrote us another letter after listening to our second episode (laughs) about the biopsy. And she said that your biopsy when you were four was an open biopsy because you were a small child. Oh, okay. She said they did do needle biopsies on adults at that time, but not on children. She said also he had to be still in bed for three or four days, which is why he was given a gift, which apparently did not meet his expected standards (laughs) that day. And she gives us a little smiley face. That was the Lego gift that... Yes. Of course, that's what I remember. Yes. I'm not sure when we were told he had Alport, but it was older than five or six. At that age, we were told he didn't have it. Ari's disease caused him to miss things in high school besides school, most notably a Portland Youth Philharmonic summer trip to Europe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The orchestra took a tour of Germany. I was very excited to go, and I was really all set to go. It was going to be so exciting, and my doctors were like, we really think this would be a bad idea. And so I didn't get to go to Germany and wear a cool jacket. Martha also writes about this incident The pediatric neurologist who did that horrible test on Ari was convinced that he had migraines. And this is the test that we were talking about in episode two, where you had the IV drugs to try to treat your headaches, and they progressively gave you more until you were 
really nauseous. Yes, until I threw up in my hospital bed. So this doctor was convinced you had migraines and was really angry when it turned out that you didn't. Martha writes, he came into Ari's room and read him the riot act, telling him that he was going to quit faking it and quit all the extracurricular activities and just go to school. After he left, we told Ari that he would not quit Portland Youth Philharmonic and would continue to do his best at school, in band, and in PYP. Hmm. And you didn't tell this part of the story at all in the second episode. Yeah, I don't remember that part of the story. I I have really just sort of flashes of memory uh, from that weekend. I remember being checked in. I remember the nurses being very helpful. I remember throwing up. I remember being very bored. I remember having the headache that night. I think I remember maybe the next day my nephrologist, my kidney doctor, coming in and being upset that I wasn't being hydrated. And she just said, what do you want to drink? Oh, you like Sprite? Great. And so she brought in the biggest pitcher I had ever seen, and she just made them fill it up with that. But I don't remember a doctor yelling at me about faking it. And that was sort of... interesting because it's very memorable and upsetting. Like even to read your mom's email, it's upsetting. Yeah, yeah, it is upsetting. I mean, it was the kind of thing that I, I heard either explicitly or implicitly somewhat more frequently the longer my, you know, headaches and being sick in general went on, especially in high school. Lots of teachers, lots of other people were kind of like, dude, get over it. Like, just come to school. And I was like, I really want to. And yeah, this sense that you were faking it or that other people thought you were faking it follows you around quite a bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it got in my head because I started wondering, well, am I? Am I over-exaggerating? And I, I don't think I was. But it it still weirds me out today a little bit. Like, well, maybe, but no, I wasn't. And your mother also says that during the spring of 1996, while waiting for your transplant, you chose not to drive because you didn't feel safe behind the wheel. Yeah, she mentioned this to me on the phone also recently, and I have zero memory of that. It doesn't super surprise me because, like, When I'm talking about uremia in college and having sort of little mistakes and big mistakes like the medication stuff, but my brain was worse, like so much worse uh, for the six months, especially leading up to transplant, that it doesn't surprise me that in a moment of just mild clarity, I would say, uh, this is a bad idea, guys. It's hard to describe this. I've always used the word sort of surreal to describe the feeling, and I think it's a terrible word. I think that Actually, if you've ever taken like NyQuil or Benadryl and it makes you a little woozy or a little drowsy, especially if you're like me and you take NyQuil and then the next day you're still a little off, that feeling intensified along with not remembering things or being able to think things through clearly, clearly, that's what I felt like for a year or two before transplant. And you would not want to drive while on NyQuil. In fact, you're not supposed to. And... I felt kind of like that, plus worse things. And um, I really hope your mom keeps writing in to get more detail. And maybe I'm really hoping we can work out technology to maybe try to interview her via Skype or something. That would be awesome. I would love to get more of her perspective. Mm -hmm. Because like, like I said in one of the earlier episodes, we are telling your story right now. But it is a much larger story with lots of other people's perspectives. Yeah. And your mother also has um, her own stories about this disease and the way that it's actually affected her personally. And she writes a little bit about this in the email. I think I'm going to save it. Okay. Um, But yeah, we should talk about her experiences too, because this is a genetic disease that has impacted your mother. Yeah. And then another question that I've gotten from several people is, uh, 
the music that we use for our intro and outro music yeah. before this. Um, in our last episode, you talked about how um, after your first transplant, you had wanted to write a piece about this experience and that mm -hmm. you hadn't had a chance to do that at the time, but that it later developed into something else. So why don't you explain what our intro and outro music is? <laughs> um, it eventually developed actually into two separate and very distinct pieces of music, one of which I feel like I'm still working on and probably will be forever. Um, but the other one I did as a project um, in a composition class at the City College of New York. And I didn't intend to start writing about disease or dealing with it. But the fact is that I went to City College to finish my degree. We're sort of leaping around some things, but we already discussed this in an overview, right after having my third transplant. So that, that idea was still in my mind that at that point, I was in my mid-30s, and I was finally finishing my undergrad. And that was tough in a lot of ways, which we will talk about then, but it really highlighted to me that I had been in um, in limbo for a long time, or felt that way, that, well, am I really waiting for my life to start? When in fact, I had actually done a lot of things and my life had started, but that feeling of being in wait was uh, really weighing on me, sort of. And so I wrote this piece called In Wait, and um, it's for vibraphone, xylophone, and clarinet, and you hear a very short excerpt of my computer playing it as the intro and the outro to our podcast. And if I remember, I'm going to try to put the entire um, computer version of the clip as the outro music for this episode, not just the tiny clip, so that people can hear the full composition. Okay. And so that brings me to our last question. <laughs> Ari, how are you feeling right now? Um, right now, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, if we had done this yesterday, I would say, oh, I'm not sure, because we have not really, like, I haven't been at school, I haven't been interacting with a lot of people or, like, touching things that might have disease on them, like I, I do when I'm at work, and still, somehow, I caught a brief cold, and I was really noticing that for the average person, it would have been, at most, a 24-hour, like, virus, and for me, it was, like, a three-day thing, of course, um, but... I'm pretty much better now, so yay, I'm feeling good. Okay, great, and we're going to end there. You can find us um, on iTunes if you search for KidneyCast, and please subscribe, please rate us and write us a review, um, both because we would love your feedback and also because that'll really help get the word out about the podcast. If you like it, share it to people who might be interested. Yeah. We are at KidneyCast on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash KidneyCast. You can email us at kidneycast at gmail.com. And if you want the show notes or our list of episodes, we are online at my website, lauramorris.com. That is L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Next episode, we will talk about the failure of Ari's first transplant. Thank you so much for talking to me, Ari. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening.